1: What is Christian nationalism? For a good portion of American evangelicalism today, here's the answer, whatever they don't like. Welcome to The Antithesis. My name is Owen Stran, and I'll be your host. We find ourselves in a very interesting time because Russia has invaded the Ukraine and gone to war with it. It is very hard for many of us to figure out exactly what is going on. We know, of course, that we do not back Russian aggression. We do not back Vladimir Putin. But it's also unclear to us what exactly Ukraine President Zelensky stands for. From what I have uncovered online, many of you have seen, he does not back uh, causes that we would find uh, consonant with the Christian worldview. It's clear to me that it is no good thing for Putin to be on the hunt and on the move. But it is also strange to me that so few of our evangelical commentators seem to realize that the cause of Russian aggression is our own American weakness. It's the fact, in other words, that we don't have a strong president, a president who has taken a strong stand, that is, against Putin, in various forms, energy and elsewhere, that has led to this very situation. Why, I ask myself these days, are global elites, including so-called evangelical elites, suddenly backing the Ukraine so hard? We had all this uh, madness going on in Canada— that was caused by Trudeau. Before that, we have lived through two years of a nightmare with regard to lockdowns. All of a sudden, the cause du jour is Russian aggression and the Ukraine. Just so I underline my earlier words, I don't want war one bit. I don't want Russia to be on the hunt. I don't want people to be dying in the Ukraine. I'm praying that the gospel will go forward somehow in all this madness. But my own conviction, I sense, sense, is that of many other Christians today. We are not sure exactly what to think about what is going on on the global stage. This is a tremendously destabilized age. My podcast is not the place to go for elite foreign policy commentary, and I'm not going to try to provide it. I'm actually, something unusual today in our time, going to try to stay in my lane. What I want to comment on is actually a conversation regarding Russia. It's been very strange from my seat in the, uh, in the, in the bleachers to see numerous evangelical commentators back in recent days, strong national borders, nationalism, martial courage, bold manhood, pushback against tyranny, and guns and fighting against Russia. Many evangelicals who have absolutely sent thunder and lightning from their keyboards and their phones on social media, in their podcasts, on their blogs, etc., many who have torched American White nationalism or Christian nationalism, white supremacist nationalism, call it what you want, have found themselves backing stances and policies and views that they have been torching for the last six years. This has been absolutely stunning to witness. It's bad for America to have a strong border With Mexico, for example, it's a terrible thing. It is dehumanizing. It kills people directly just to have a policy, it's argued. And yet, when Russia violates a border, it is all of a sudden good to be pro-borders. It's a terrible thing for American Christians to have a a love for their country, what could be called nationalism. I guess if you were trying to uh, uh, loop this all together, call it Christian nationalism. That's terrible. That is really, for many, on the evangelical left and in the evangelical center, air quotes, really the the problem of our time. It is linked inextricably, as I alluded to a moment ago, with what is called white supremacy and systemic racism. Rarely are these things made sense of. In actuality, they don't make sense, because these charges for the last several years have been absolutely ridiculous in most cases. There are some outliers that you can find in America. There are some fringe groups who say and stand for terrible things that any normal American Christian is not at all supportive of. But what has happened in the evangelical center, and certainly with the evangelical left, is it has identified as white supremacist and as Christian nationalist what used to simply be called... Evangelical conservatism. So that's the answer to the question I posed at the beginning of this podcast. What is Christian nationalism? Basically, for many today, it is just a Christian who has a meaningful doctrine of the state. A Christian who has some conservative vision of public theology. That is equated with white supremacy. That is equated with systemic racism. That is equated with the evil of Christian nationalism. But in Ukraine, going back there, in the commentariat in recent days, it has been a good thing for Ukraine citizens to feel a strong sense of nationalism. It's terrible for Americans to feel this, just to repeat myself, at pains of the point being lost on someone out there. But it's wonderful for people overseas to feel this. And I I won't hold back. This is absolutely laughable. It's good, furthermore, uh, to see courage on the part of Ukrainians as they rise up against a tyrant, as they rise up against aggressors. Someone like me is going to say, yes, it is good. But we have been told the last few years, certainly with regard to the lockdown, that we should do anything but take courage and push back. Loving our neighbor does not mean one bit pushing back against imperial leftism in America or in recent days, in the last year or so, in Canada. It doesn't mean that at all. There's no courage to take. You're supposed to just sit quietly, get your marching orders from the state, know that loving your neighbor is causing no ripples. There's no case, basically, for defying tyranny, operative in the, in the American Evangelical Center— and the American evangelical left, and so you just, take, you just take your medicine. Whatever the nanny state gives out to you, you take it, and you take it without a word. We've also seen strong encouragement of President Zelensky, his bold manhood, his fighting spirit. Numerous evangelical centrists and leftists backed Zelensky in recent days, celebrating the fact that he was taking up arms against Russia. As I read this, it's it's a good thing, from what I can tell. I guess, uh, I, a, as far as I can see, that he would do so. I don't I don't want the Ukraine to be taken over, certainly. And I'm I don't know much about Zelensky, but I'm I'm glad to see a man who will fight for his people. But wait, it's bad in America when men do that. It's bad in Canada when men stand up to tyrants. But it's good in the Ukraine. Furthermore. It's great, we're told, that a lot of citizens and folks in the Ukraine are taking up guns and shooting bullets and going to war. But our side has had no meaningful doctrine of such action for some time. The right to bear arms is not at all celebrated by the American Evangelical Center, and certainly not by the American evangelical left those who would support the Second Amendment in America are said to be those who cling to their guns and their religion. And it's not just secularists who say such things. It's many who claim the name of Christ. What does all of this mean? This means that a lot of folks today who have a solid to big platform are speaking out of both sides of their mouth. What is bad in America is glorious in the ukraine and what i want you to hear at least from me on this humble little podcast is that this is frankly ridiculous if it is good in the ukraine it is good in america if it is good in the ukraine it is good in canada if it is good in the ukraine it's good anywhere else you can name it is good to have borders it's the basic foundation of a society. There is very nearly nothing more foundational to a society, to a people, certainly a nation, than having borders and defending them. You must have them. In case you've gone to a university or a college or a high school, or you've been swimming in a in a context where everybody around you indicates that support for borders is xenophobia and then... Eventually, the charge will always come out, racism, and then the charge will even morph further into what it really actually is underneath the surface, white supremacy. That is total hogwash. Any country needs borders. Any people needs borders. And those borders have to be defended. They have to be policed. You need to carefully think through immigration. Many of us are thrilled for the immigration that has occurred in the American past, and we're glad for it to happen elsewhere in the world, of course, as well. And yet, immigration is not an unlimited good. It is a matter of policy. You have to think through, based on the good of your society, its stability, its economy, these and many other matters, your national identity at some level, what level of immigration you allow. But the point should stand here very clearly for anybody out there who has a basic working biblical sense of Israel, for example. Israel had to defend its borders over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. Any nation is going to have to do that. I'm not going to try to give you a deep exegetical dive on politics here on this podcast. I'm more just going to comment at a at a theological level, a worldview level. But even the most cursory glance at how ancient Israel had to function with warrior peoples all around it is going to tell you that you have to have borders. And it is a very good thing, it is an essential thing for countries today to have borders and to police them, and again, to figure out carefully how many people to take in as a country. It is very good, furthermore, as a Christian, to support, to whatever extent you can, nationalism. Or you could call it patriotism. There's different ways to sort out what is what. There's distinctions to draw. But because people use those terms to mean basically the same thing, I'll just say, I'll just say it like this. For you as a Christian to, to take a certain amount of thankfulness in where you are, knowing that if your family has been there for generations, let's say, that, that you have a certain connection to that nation, to that state, to that country— That's not an evil reality. It's certainly not an ultimate reality for you. Where you live, the country you're found in, is not your ultimate identity as a Christian. It it shouldn't be. It can't be. You're ultimately a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And so that is a very substantial claim on your life and on your identity. But being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, of the kingdom of Christ, does not in any sense mean— That you then need to divest yourself from any kind of national identity. That if there's ever a danger of you taking a single moment's joy or pride in your country, you're sinning in a terribly foul Christian nationalist white supremacist way. That is not remotely true. As a Christian, wherever you are, you should seek the good of the city you're in. Jeremiah 29. When God's people were in Babylon. They were to seek the good of Babylon. They're in no way to imbibe the sin of Babylon. They have to fight it at all counts. But they're to seek the good of the city they're in. So it is with us. Is there going to be a sliding scale here where we're able to support some countries and some governments and some Caesars, if you will, more than others? Absolutely. You're going to greatly struggle to find pride in Hitler's Germany in a way you're not going to struggle to find it in 20th century America. That doesn't make one totally evil and the other totally perfect. That's not at all a reasonable, rational thinking case. Nonetheless, Christians will support their country. That's just an overflow, in a very basic way, frankly, of seeking the good of the city you're in. It doesn't mean you whitewash everything that your country does or your city does or your community does. Absolutely not. A Christian is a thinking citizen. There's going to be a fair amount of complexity here then in living in a fallen world. That's why public theology is probably the least attended to discipline there is. It's the least thought through discipline. Christian political philosophy based on scripture uh, is very undernourished compared to other Christian disciplines, theological disciplines. And part of why is because there are real gray areas and hard questions that confront us. A bunch of you who listen to this podcast know that that's why it exists, because there are hard questions and there are gray areas, and so we try to reason from the Word of God, from absolute clarity, to that which is less clear. All of this, then, allows you— not even allows you, but summons you to, in the right sense, want the good of the place in which you live. That's not an evil reality. It's a, it's a biblical reality. And as I, as I say, at pains of overstating, that's not good to do in the Ukraine, because a tyrant is opposing the the Ukraine, and evil to do in America. That is how, in particular... Younger Christians are being trained. They are being trained in a neither left nor right framework. They are actually being trained, many of them, to despise America. They are being trained that uh, racism and slavery is so bad in the American past that it really constitutes all of the American past. It's really the only conversation we can have about America. There's basically nothing good to say about America. That's how bad our legacy truly is. Well, as some of you will know who have read my book, Christianity and Wokeness is just one example. I am clear-eyed, at least I try to be, about sins in the American past. We must be. Christians are called to be. We're not trying to, to pretend our countries are perfect. We know they're not perfect. We're citizens of the kingdom that is perfect and that will very soon take over the entire earth. So we're not scared at all about having conversations about sin, racism, slavery, so on and so forth. My book is very clear about failings in the American past. But having said that, now let me push back the other way and say that there is great good in the American past. There are things to be ashamed of in the American past, not that you've done personally and you don't bear guilt for those things before God, but there are real matters over which to grieve. But then there is a tremendous amount because of God's common grace, not our feelings on the matter, that we celebrate, that we're thankful for, that we support. We're grateful, for example, for the legacy of liberty that America has uniquely, basically uniquely enjoyed in pretty much global history in the last several hundred years. Did we distribute that liberty equally to all? No, we did not. Is America nonetheless a country that has afforded many a life of greater liberty than many other countries. Has not the church flourished in America because of the unprecedented liberty citizens have and enjoy here? Yes. There is much good in the American past. There is much to celebrate. There is much to learn about. There is much to study. And a curriculum of shame only trains young people whether at the teenage level or in college, university or beyond, to hate their country and hate themselves. This has already happened in the UK. It's happened in Europe. And now it's happening actively in America as Marxist ideology works its way into our educational system at all levels and trains the youth to despise this civilization. And I want you to understand, that's evil. That is an evil work. And it's not just that some people out there disagree about how much to talk about this or how much to talk about that. It's that the very foundations of our civilization are not just being undermined. There's dynamite being placed under us at all times today in classrooms across this land. There's dynamite being placed under the feet of our children in order that this society and this civilization would be detonated, would be burned down. Would be toppled. You say, Strand, what coffee did you drink this morning? Dark dark roast, my friend, as usual. Why are you talking like this? I'm talking like this because this is what Marxism says is its goal. This isn't this isn't Marxism at fever pitch. This is just this is your grandfather's garden variety of Marxism. Marxism seeks the dissolution of civilization in order that it would rebuild it on a just, equable, and utopian foundation. Marxism is history's most successful bad idea, but it recurs in societies because its utopianism always makes it very, very appealing to the rising generation, especially young people, because young people tend toward a kind of easy, visionary ideology. Young people, in other words, want this sort of cure-all for the world. They want somebody to come along and tell them that their parents got it all wrong, certainly their grandparents or great-grandparents, they got it all wrong, and so they are very susceptible to an ideology that would say, the old people are the problem, and you young people the generation of progress and hope and sweetness and light and peace, you're the solution. That is what Marxism says on many different fronts, economically, racially, politically, uh, so on and so forth. And it's a very appealing vision, and it's a vision that is being sold to American children every day and will have, continue to have, explosive effects. It's good, going back to my little list here that I was talking about a few minutes ago, it's good to have bold manhood. It's good to have courage. It's good to have pushback against tyranny. It's good for citizens to be able to defend themselves against Caesar. All these things are good. But as I am at pains to say, these realities are not only good in the Ukraine. These realities are not only good when there is an identifiable aggressor who everybody agrees does not have good intentions in mind and needs to be fought these realities are good in all places in all times for all Christians and for all people that's the point I would make so we're having a, a grand game played right now in the church remember that my my target is not the broader political community my target is the church that's who I attempt to speak to as humbly um, as as that Little work is in my case. So I can't go out there and convince everybody in America, for example, to be conservative. That's not what I'm called to do. Others are called to make that case, and I'm thankful they are. I'm just trying to speak to fellow Christians, and I'm trying to speak in particular to younger Christians, and I'm trying to say to them that if you are being sold the view that Christian nationalism is good overseas and is bad in America— That is something, frankly, that should cause you to snort your morning coffee right out of your nose. This is ridiculous. This is a political philosophy that is no political philosophy at all. It makes you wonder what the motives are of those who would critique Christian nationalism here, but celebrate it to the skies in other countries. Why is it It is a good thing to fight for the preservation of your civilization. Remember that a civilization is a work of God's common grace, and it's often connected with unusual doses of special grace. Not always. But usually, when you have a strong civilization that that offers real freedom to its citizens, there's often in global history a connection to special grace. In other words, to God's blood-bought church being in that area. It's not always the case. There are there are different regimes that are, are not ultimately anchored in a Christian worldview that have offered relative freedom to their people. There have been, there are, and there will be. But in global history, it is frequently the case, let's put it that way, we're speaking carefully here to watch our tracks, it's frequently the case that the civilizations that offer the most liberty, that offer the most freedom, are those who have some connection to the Christian worldview, to some grasp on the Scripture. I'm not making different denominations the same thing. I'm not saying across denominations that Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy and biblical Protestantism uh, are all the same reality. I don't believe that. There is one gospel, and uh, true Christianity, Christianity itself, is only that which accords with the Scripture, which accords with the Gospel. But there is a kind of broader Christian framework that many civilizations have drawn off. And in those uh, societies, there is not infrequently more liberty and more freedom enjoyed by citizens. So there's a connection between what we call civilization, uh, which owes to God's common grace, and special grace, God's church. There's a a frequent connection connection between the two, that we often miss. It's very easy, you see, to talk about wanting a neutral public square, or a naked public square, but who builds such? Who builds that kind of public square? It's usually those who are at the very least religious, and frequently those who would claim to be some kind of Christian—and I'm not defining that only according to the gospel here—but I mean Christian in a broad worldview, uh, connectional sense who would build such a public square. And that is a very good thing to have. It is a very good thing to have a civilization. It's a very good thing for Christians to support civilizations. We're not those who cheer on anarchy. We don't want less civilization. We don't want less common grace rather than more. We want more common grace. We're not saying with such a confession that Christianity's lights will blink out anywhere there there is opposition to Christianity. To the contrary, the Scripture, biblical history, shows us that actually God is very pleased to persevere and even advance the cause of his glory in places that hate him. So, we don't take confidence in political systems. We don't think that the gospel will only advance where there is a a, a virtuous political system or a Christian is in office. We know that's not necessarily the case. We don't place our hope in nations and states and in kings. But we are also very thankful, and we must be. And we are petulant, foolish children if we don't see this. We, We should be very thankful for common grace. We should be very thankful in a 1 Timothy 2 sense when leaders, whether those leaders are believers or not, allow us to live quietly and peaceably. That is what we are called to pray for. We're called to pray for kings and rulers and those in authority, according to Paul speaking to Timothy, in order that we would be able to lead quiet, peaceable lives. There's no call in the New Testament to pray for anarchy and chaos. The church will survive such by the grace of God, the gospel will go out in anarchy and chaos. But we are not called to pray that common grace would disappear. And this is connected to another bad idea that has been out there that I've been dancing around here, that it would be wonderful and marvelous if All common grace would drop out because then we would truly know who is a believer and who isn't. There may actually be some definitional clarity that happens when common grace drops out. That may well be true. But on the other hand, again, we're simply not called to pray that civilizations would crumble. We know that God may choose to to take civilizations down. He has many times in global history— as long as Christ tarries, he will do so again. But the Christian isn't called fundamentally to ask God to destroy all vestiges of common grace around them in order that they alone can, can be the one beacon of light in their area. There's a much more complex reality that's at play for the Christian. We want common grace all around us, even as our foremost concern is that special grace would penetrate the darkness, and that sinners would be saved. And yes, when sinners are saved, there will be tremendous effects in a society. But it is not the case. It is not only true that all Christians do in a civilization is preach the gospel. It is not only true that we start churches and uh, gather with our churches and uh, live our corporate lives together we absolutely do that. We must do that. That has tremendous value. That is really the signpost of the kingdom, the corporate worship of King Jesus. That's why many of us have tried to speak up for churches that have gathered under penalty in a lockdown season, an unjust, even tyrannical lockdown season all across the world. There is no exception clause to gathering in praise and celebration of the true King, Jesus Christ. We do that in all seasons and for all time. And that is what we will do when Jesus makes the whole earth his footstool. Until that day, yes, the the corporate worship of Christ is absolutely vital and essential and is a crucial element of our public witness. But it's not all. Christians don't only preach the gospel and don't only pray. We must. That's so important. But Christians also seek to be salt and light. We seek to emulate John the Baptist in Matthew 14, 1 to 12. We call sin, sin in public. We live responsibly as citizens, as Paul did in Acts 22, when he drew on the prerogatives and, frankly, privilege of his Roman citizenship in order to stay in the game a little longer and not be beat to smithereens. So you can pull together a meaningful doctrine of Christian citizenship from the New Testament, from the broader Bible, and you should. It is not the case that all Christians do in a given society— is gather with the local church. That's essential. And if you're not a member of a local church, join one. And if there's not a strong Bible-preaching local church within an hour or two hours even of you, do what you need to do. Drive to it weekly. Move near it, ideally long-term. Plant yourself by a local church. That's how important it is. A body of believers and local expression for your faith. But that's not all you do. You also need to be salt and light in, (laughs) frankly, a thousand different ways that the Bible does not foreclose or exactly spell out. But you need to be an actionable Christian wherever you are. We are not all called to run for public office. We are not all called to run for president or the Supreme Court or U.S. Senate or something like this. We all have our role to play. But we must be Christians who seek to be salt and light where we are. We must seek the good of the city in which we are placed, Jeremiah 29. This all requires that we build a Christian worldview, that we build it in our young. And here I don't mean a generic Christian worldview. I mean a distinctly biblical and salvation-shaped Christian worldview with the sovereignty of God at the center. We need to build a Christian worldview. We need to build a Christian public theology. The element of theology that doesn't deal with uh, soteriology, that doesn't deal with bibliology, that doesn't deal with eschatology, but deals with being a Christian in a fallen world—Christian public theology. We badly need an exegetical public theology, and we need, lastly— Christians to run for office when I'm speaking of the American context, but all over the world, wherever you are, we need Christians in public leadership wherever we can get them. This as I say goes directly against in the teeth of the anti-Christian nationalism case. You've already heard me say it. I I'm not for some fringe extremist violent vision of Christian nationalism. I don't believe that um, that America is destined to be a totally converted Christian nation. I I, I have no sense uh, that that is even the goal for the church. But I do believe this: I do very much want Christians who do not sit on their hands, who do not think that they are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, and then uh, there's all this messy stuff that goes on in the kingdom of man, and we have absolutely nothing to do with the kingdom of man. We sort of look over at it. We, We proclaim Christ. We share the gospel when we can, according to the verbiage of many modern Christians. But that's really all we do. We don't freak out over it, because that's just rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. I reject that Claim, and you should too. John the Baptist beheaded, rejected the claim that plunging into this world as salt and light is a futile exercise in rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Instead, you and I need to be witnesses in all of life, and we badly need more Christians to step up and take leadership in their small community in their city, in their state, in their country. The irony here will be that if you do so, if you push into the gray area, you will very much risk the wrath, and I do mean wrath, of the evangelical center and the evangelical left around you. These groups portray themselves as kinder and gentler, but they're really only kind and gentle to those they agree with, those who agree with them. They present a kind of tolerant and peaceful front, at least in what they say some of the time, but if you dare to differ with them, you will see that they have just as much anger uh, and just as much wrath for that which they despise as anyone else naturally does. We all have much to repent of. We all— have a strong nativist streak in us that leads us, our own sin, we ourselves lead ourselves to despise others who differ from us. It is not only conservatives, people on the far right, these sorts of weirdo types who have such instincts. That's the way this is sold and marketed to you, that if you're a conservative, if you're a Christian conservative, then you are part of the extremist majority or extremist minority, wherever you are, depending on the dynamics, and you have this surging anger and xenophobia and discrimination and white supremacy in you if if you're a part of that movement, whether by skin color or by ideology. But that is a lie. Everybody has anger that can burn down a forest, according to James, contained in their tiny little tongue. Everybody has bile in their ducks. Everybody has real sin to kill. It is not only conservatives and Christian conservatives, speaking of my own personal group—I'm a Christian, not just a conservative—I'm a Christian who have these instincts. Everybody does. If you dare to step out in public and try to take leadership— you will be shot at. And I want to issue a special call here to men. Too often, uh, conservative Christians have said that we're called to honor and embrace biblical manhood and biblical womanhood in the home and the church, but we've left out the third part that we shouldn't have left out, Uh, the public square, whatever you want to call it, the broader world, society the workplace. No. We're not saying that uh, women submit to men who aren't their husbands in the same way they submit to their husbands in the workplace or in politics or something like this. No, not at all. But we are saying that biblical manhood, the call to authority, leadership, a better term than modern leadership, which is gender-neutral, is statesmanship. That call is not only found in the home and the church. That call of God— two men, is found in broader society, in, in all the varied complexity that represents. We need, if I can just speak a little more plainly here, men to step up in public. We need men to not love the comfort of their solitude. We need men to step out and be salt and light in public. We need men to take sound biblical doctrine— Not natural law ideology shorn of biblical doctrine. No, 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 no. We need men who stand for sound biblical doctrine, not only in their Sunday school class, not only in their house, not only with their buddies. We need men who will stand for sound biblical doctrine in the public square. Someone will say to you, that sounds... Terrifyingly, like Christian nationalism. Actually, dear friend, it's just John the Baptist-like courage expressed through gospel faith as salt and light in a fallen world. Stop trying to be a Christian quietist who leaves no wrinkle on the mattress, on the comforter. Start trying to be a John the Baptist who fights evil on behalf of image bearers in order to love neighbor, and above all, for the glory of God. Start being that kind of Christian. Stop worrying About what the evangelical center and left in America or wherever you are will hate tweet about you. Pay them no mind. Stop fearing man. Stop considering man in whom is breath. Of what account is he? Who cares what people say about you? Who cares if they hate you? Who cares if they despise you for daring to stand on the word of God? Stand on the word of God. Violate all the codes of modern secular niceness. Don't buy the paradigm that if you're going to be a Christian in public, you should take big scissors, eight-inch-long scissors, and snip away all the distinctively biblical and Christian elements of your public witness. Don't buy the framework that some Christians buy with a vision of natural law ideology where when they're talking in their church, they can quote a Bible verse, but when they take up public office, they have to basically pretend they're not a Christian at all. That is not the model of John the Baptist. That is not the model of the Apostle Paul. That is not the model of Daniel. You need to be one who loves and promotes and proclaims the same biblical truth in your Sunday school class that you do on the floor of the U.S. Senate. And you need to be liberated, even exercised, from the fear of being labeled a Christian nationalist. It is an attack that has come up in recent days. That is intended, I believe, whatever human beings mean and and they're a complex blend, we always are, all of us, I am very much convinced that this is a scheme of Satan to quiet the church, to quiet those who actually would boldly proclaim biblical truth and the biblical gospel in the public square. I believe that many of us have allowed ourselves to be silenced, even, even, well— fully, or, or to a, at least a degree, by the fear that we will end up being labeled a Christian nationalist. And then we'll get tagged, furthermore, with what I said always seems to follow with that or be associated with that. We're a white supremacist, we're one who supports systemic racism, on and on it goes. I, I want to just repeat myself. I don't hate anybody uh, on any side. I don't fight against flesh and blood. I very much seek to destroy strongholds, including the stronghold that has been foisted upon many by evangelical centrists, so-called, and the evangelical left. But I don't, I don't hate those who have foisted such a stronghold upon the church, who have urged at all costs a neither left nor right ideology that has absolutely quieted the church's bold biblical witness. I don't hate them. I want to speak the truth in love. I want them to repent of their unsound teaching. I want them to come back to the truth. I want God to work in their hearts such that they stop muzzling God's people and instead become part of the work of living salt and living light. I don't despise those who differ with me even to the strongest degree. We're called to pray for those who oppose us, pray for our enemies. And I, as much as anyone else, need to do so. B- but adopting such a posture based on obedience to Scripture does not in any sense mean that you and I allow that side to speak clearly and declaratively of their views, and then we sit over here and twiddle our thumbs and just try to be nice because we're desperately afraid that somebody will label us some bad name like controversialist or Christian nationalist, or something akin to these identifiers. No. No. There is a higher call. There is a call to stand up and speak. There is a call for every Christian to proclaim Christ. There is a need especially for men to stop letting the world quiet them down, And instead rise up as a godly force in America, in Canada, in the UK, in the Ukraine, in Russia, wherever it may be, wherever the true church is found. There is a tremendous need for Christian men to stand up and lead and be statesmen, not only in the home having authority, not only in the church having authority, but in society. There is a tremendous need today for men who will not fear the world, but will instead proclaim Christ. That will likely get you labeled. That will likely draw you hate. But on the last day, I assure you, none of that will even enter your mind. You will watch on the last day as Christ vindicates his people. And you and I will see, sure as your watch is ticking, sure as the clock is counting down, sure as the sun rises and goes down, we will see the devil thrown into the lake of fire. We will see evil itself overcome until that day. Rise and do not be silent.